All right, now that we've read the entire book of Romans in the intro video, let's go have lunch. It's a sad day today, guys. The Olympics are ending. Tough day, isn't it? Yeah, closing ceremony. I watched the, uh, the marathon uh, this morning. Fast guys won. Slow guys lost. They ran a four-minute mile. Anyway, tough day, you know. You know what else is tough? The book of Romans is tough. The book of Romans is, is a tough book to walk through. And we have been walking through it for the last two years, off and on, because, you know, we'll get our field and then our brains explode and we have to gather everything back up and try to figure out what was just said and what we just studied. And, and then um, jump back into it uh, a few months later. Uh, so we are in Romans chapter 9 and we are um, right in the middle. And we are dealing with some pretty stuff tough, stuff tough, right? We're dealing with some, thank you, Curtis. We're, we're dealing with some pretty tough stuff. Um, <clears throat> so before we jump in to the verses today, I'm going to have to do some recapping for us um, because I know over the summer people are gone, and um, if we jump right in, you're going to be lost. So um, what, what you need to know is this. Paul's letters um, normally are very straightforward. Wonder that he, he makes these wonderful points in concise sentences or paragraphs. But in Romans, uh, it's like he's writing a dissertation or, or this long-form essay. For those of you guys that are English majors, I'm not, but I know the difference between what I read in Romans, not to mention what I've studied and what, um, what, I've, what I've read as other people uh, have studied this. There's a difference between Romans and his other letters. Uh, in his other, other letters, he'll refer back to a main point uh, by making these quick and easy to understand statements. In, in the book of Romans, his main point is in uh, chapter 1, verse 17. And he's actually uh, quoting Habakkuk 2.4. Verse 17, it says, For in the, in the gospel, that's the good news of, of Jesus Christ, in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. That's the quote from Habakkuk. Now this word faith is not really our word faith. Our word faith, we use faith as this is my faith. I heard uh, this morning um, uh, David Bodiah, the guy who won the 10 meter diving platform. If you screw that dive up, you're just dead, right? I mean, you fall wrong on that. I mean, it's squashed like a bug. It's unbelievable. Anyway, this morning I heard him say, you know, my faith got me through this. And the way we use the word faith is like my, my religion, my Christianity, my, my Islam. He was a, a Christian, I think. Um, and, and, you know, so we use it as what we were raised with or, or what our parents believed. Paul doesn't use it in that way. Paul uses it in the same way that we use the word trust. The righteous will live by trust. Because this is what faith really means. It means placing your trust in your heavenly Father. So Paul will take chapters in Romans. Uh, chapters 1 through 4 are, are kind of clumped together and they point back to this main idea. The righteous will live by trusting God. 4 through 7, chapter 8, chapters 9 through 11 all point back to this one verse. I mean, it's crazy. 
So you've got to read it, and, and, and it, it's, you know, you're like, okay, this is a sub-point of what he's saying, and, and you know, you're doing diagrams and all this stuff. I'm going to try to simplify it for you, but like I said, we've got we to do some, um, some background. But when you read Romans, um, you know, I've I got to tell you, it's, it's almost like we were spoon-fed all the time. You know what I'm saying? Well, I mean, we, we, we come to church, we sit down, you know, pastor tells us what we need to hear, what, we, what he thinks we need to hear, whatever it is, and, and then we go out on our merry way, and we say, all right, I hope I can really do this. And so Monday comes, and you're trying, and then you failed, and Tuesday comes, and you're trying, and you failed, and then Wednesday comes, and you're like, ah, whatever. You go back Sunday for more, right? That's a horrible cycle, all right? We don't want to be in that cycle. And, and, and sometimes... When you read scripture and you pick it up, whether you're at home or, or you listen to me or somebody else, you can get lost. And it's almost like you have to have a PhD to understand some scripture. You know what I'm saying? For those of you that have PhDs, you should be up here, not me, right? I, I mean, you, it's like you have to work in academia in order for our minds to be challenged. So today, here's what I want to do. I want us to focus really hard and I want to challenge our minds and look at the second part of what is probably the hardest passage in all of scripture to understand. Go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 9. We're going we're gonna to start in verse 15. And while you're doing that, let me give you a recap of some stuff that we've talked about before. Um, Paul gives us a definition of predestination in Romans 8, 29. If you want to turn one page over, it's, that's where it's at. He says, for those God foreknew... These are those who choose Jesus, choose to follow Jesus, choose to walk with Jesus. They make that conscious decision. For those that God foreknew, for those that God, God saw would choose Him, He also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of His Son. That's where predestined really freaks us out, right? I mean, it's, whoa, hang on. I'm, I'm, from the moment I was born, that's not what He says. From the moment that you choose Jesus, for those God foreknew, he also predestined. What are you predestined for him? To become a plumber or a drug addict or, 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 or a CEO or, or a whatever, a PhD, you know, uh, uh, an amazing guitar player like Kevin, right? But is that what you're predestined? That's not what he says. You are predestined to be conformed to the likeness of, your son, of his son. You are predestined to be holy. That's what you're predestined for. When you begin a relationship with Christ, you are predestined to be holy. Now, and he's not talking about you individually as much as he's talking about the church, us as a body of believers. And really, he's not even talking about NOCC. He's talking about the big church worldwide. Does that make sense? So like, like people in Brazil, right, that beat our volleyball team, we're not really liking them too much, but the women's volleyball team, but... But people in Brazil who know Jesus are part of the church and they are predestined to be holy. So, Paul focuses in chapter 9 on Israel. <clears throat> and the way we know this, and, he, and he's driving his point home towards the Jews, um, there's a Jewish, uh, a mix in these churches of Jewish and Gentiles. Most of us are going to be Gentiles, right? Unless you came and grew up in Israel, I'm Scott Irish, I'm a Gentile, um, but in, in, unless you were a Jew, you're a Gentile. And so they're mixed, 
in these churches. And there's a little tension and friction. And in chapter 9, Paul starts talking about Israel, the nation, the country. And he points this out because he says he's got an introduction in verses 1 through 5. And he's got a conclusion in verses, uh, what is it, 30 through 33, which we'll get to in a couple of weeks. And he makes it clear. It's Israel. It's Israel. It's Israel. I'm talking about Israel. Hey, those of you who are Jewish, let me talk to you about Israel. For those of you that are Gentiles, listen. You can pay attention too. And so many people have taken some of these verses that are in the middle, we're going to look at some today, and they take them too far, and they say that an individual, you as an individual, cannot make a decision or a choice to follow Jesus. That decision is only by God, and He's the one that makes that decision for you. You can choose whether to go left or right, straight or back or forward. You can choose where to go out to eat after, after church. But the decision of salvation is God and God's alone. But just like Adam and Eve, and just like Abraham and everyone after him in Scripture, they were given the choice to follow him or to not follow him. Just like you and I have the choice to follow him, but here's the thing. <clears throat> it's our decision whether we want to take the steps that we take with Him or without Him. He so desperately wants us to take them with Him. He, he died for us to take them with Him. He died so that we have a one-step process to come to Him. The step is to accept His forgiveness, to quit disobeying Him, to dedicate ourselves to Him, and to trust Him for the rest of our lives. That may sound like four steps, right? It's like, what? hang on, that was one one. Here's, here's what it is. You're walking away from God, and you turn to God, and you walk with God. It is, it is a 180 degree turn from where you are going to walking with God. With God. To walking with God, bright light, morning star, okay? and living for Him. Now, last week we started looking at these verses that are, that are real difficult. Like in verse 15, um, Paul is quoting um, a verse and he says, for, for he says to Moses, and we, we look back at this verse, what is it? Uh, Exodus 33, 19. Um, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And we read this verse, and we automatically go, ho, 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 wait, 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 God's picking and choosing, right? And if you pull that verse straight out like that, yeah, that's what it says. But if you go back and you read this, in Exodus 33, 19, you see Moses is on the mountain, or he's talking to God, rather, and, and, and Moses says, listen, God, we're going to go, and if you're not going to go with us, I don't want to go, because all these other nations around us see you, and they know you, and if you don't go with us, we're going to look like idiots. And so we beg you, go with us, because we want them to see your glory. 
And God says, in essence, the way this verse is used, don't worry. I'm going to have mercy on whom I have mercy and compassion on whom I have compassion. In other words, they don't deserve it. But they'll still get my mercy. And they'll still get my compassion. And we take this in the, in the negative when it's really a positive statement. God's saying, I'm going to give it out where they don't deserve it. And the nations around Israel are deserving of judgment, but he has mercy on them. And then verse 18, right? Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden, right? And this just gives us the shivers up and down, right? Oh, how do you deal with that? <clears throat> and we talked last week about Pharaoh and how, you know, Pharaoh and, and Moses, that whole story and the hardening of his heart, and we, we asked a couple of questions. The first one we asked was, isn't this God forcing someone to do something? And the thing is, if, if it is, if you know the Moses-Pharaoh Moses Exodus story, it goes like this. God says, Moses, I want you to go and tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And he's not going to do it. Now, this is God looking, look, being able to look into time. He's outside of time, but still not forcing us to do anything. Not forcing us to make decisions. He has great influence, but he doesn't force. And so, is this God forcing someone to do something? And if it is, which it's not, then God is doing the exact opposite of the promise that he gave to the nation of Israel. He said, he told Moses, I'm going to give you a land flowing with milk and honey. And so, if he's hardening God's heart in the way that some people take it to mean, you know, like, like it is indestructible and he'll never change his mind, well then, there's a problem there because God promised they'll have a land flowing with milk and honey, but if Pharaoh's not going to let them go, we've we got issues. So there's got to be something more to this hardening thing that God does. And the other question that we asked is, isn't this the opposite of what Paul has been saying the whole time in chapters 1 through 8 in this verse here? Because in 1 through 8, he's killing this point. I mean, just hammering at home. The righteous will live by trusting Jesus. Abraham, look at him. He trusted God, and God credited and gave him righteousness. Right? I mean, you, you see it over and over and over again. And so Paul's not contradicting himself. There's many different words for this. There are many different ways to translate this word harden. They all basically mean the same thing. There's 132 different words in English that we translate this word hard. Um, most of them all correspond to strong, strengthen, repair, encourage, or to give strength. Right? So in this case, for us, we want God to harden our hearts, right? In that way. Like, I, I, I want God to be able to strengthen me in tough times. Right? To, to repair me when I'm broken, to encourage me when I'm down, to give me strength each and every day. I want that from God. I want God to strengthen my heart in that way. Now in this verse, this word is translated and appropriately so, so hardened. To make heavy. To make stiff neck. Right? But you have to understand this word harden is exactly that word, to harden. It'd be like this. If I took a bunch of sand and put a lot of pressure on it, 
I'd create a pane of glass, right? That's how, that's how glass is made, right? I don't know how. I don't understand it. But it does. Somehow they take sand, they put it somewhere, and it comes out like this. This is hardened sand. This is not an indestructible piece of glass, though. This would never be put in the president's limo, right? Because this piece of glass... is destructible. It's hardened, but it is not impervious. And it can be broken and shattered and just like your heart, crumbled and remolded. You can take this. I don't know how they do it again. Somehow they can melt this back down and they can remold this. And, and so this word, this word hardened, we have to understand it is not invincible. It is not impervious to everything that God throws at it. Pharaoh, listen, if it were, Pharaoh would not have turned at the 10th plague. 10th plague, God says, all right, I'm bringing the, the big guns and every one of the firstborn children are going to die. Now, keep, think about this. This isn't just babies. This is me. I'm a firstborn, right? This is old men, old women, right? Everyone, firstborn, gone. I make light. It shouldn't make light. But, and, and so we have to understand that when that happens, man... Pharaoh turned, and he said, let them go. Get rid of them. I can't take it anymore. Only to take up his hardened heart once again all on his own. Now, here's the thing. Pharaoh could have turned earlier in his life and still fulfilled the promise that God gave to Moses. In verse 17... God promised Moses that he would display his power and proclaim his name through Pharaoh. And people often go back to that and they say, Oh, look here, look here, look here. Look, I see it, right? And, and what it says is, I will proclaim my name through Pharaoh. God could have done that if Moses came to him and said, Pharaoh, let my people go. And Pharaoh said, oh, you've got a great God. And he got down on his knees and he worshiped God. And then he let them all go. God's name is glorified. God's name is known. His power is shown. Now, here's the thing. And I told you this last week. I don't know how he does what he does. But it has to do with his great influence. And I know that it does not affect my decision-making ability I don't know how he walks that very fine line between his great and powerful influence and still gives me the freedom to choose. His influence may be very strong because it is just what I need at the moment that I need it in order to either begin or further my relationship with God. But it's not irresistible it can still be denied. The question is, why would we? Why would we deny His influence? Why would we deny His power in our lives? Even when we're fighting and fighting and fighting and, and we're doing stuff and, and it's not bad, but, but 
God says, I want you to do this and, and, and follow me. And you're like, ah, don't, don't deny that. Walk with him. So we saw last week that God chose Israel, the nation of Israel, and we choose to be a part of the church, the new Israel, by trusting Jesus. And so Paul continues this theme of mercy as he continues on. You're like, oh man, we're just getting into the good stuff. Don't worry, we're going to roll through this pretty good. Verse 19. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who resists his will? Now, you're probably going, what's up with this guy? Who is it? You know, This guy is a rhetorical questioner of Paul's. He's making this guy up because he feels like these are questions that are going to come from the church, churches in Rome. And he's asking this question because they feel like their nation, Israel, because remember, he's been talking nationalistic, not individualistic. He feels like their nation, Israel, hasn't been dealt this mercy and compassion that some of the other nations have. And here's, here's the thing. Remember, historically, right at the time that this letter is written, Nero kicks out all of the Jews. Whether they were messianic, they believed in Jesus, or whether they were just regular Jews and didn't believe in Jesus. They were fighting about Jesus, and they were like, Jesus is the way, and they were like, no, no, and they started rioting. Nero said, you know, enough with you. You're all gone. And he kicks them all out. And so at the time Paul writes this letter, Nero had died about three or four years earlier, and they were just coming back into Rome. And they were integrating themselves back into Rome and into their old lives and into the churches. So they have a real reason to ask this question. Why is God still blaming us? What's going on? Verse 20. But who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to him who formed it? Why did you make me like this? Now this is a tough question. And Paul is forcefully taking this rhetorical questioner and trying to put him in his place. And he's saying, listen... God picked Israel? I don't know why, but he did. And, and, and can you, Israel, or you, a man of Israel, can you really question God and his decisions? Because God is free to do the things that he, that he wants to do, just like he, we are free to do the things that we want to do. And he's even more free than us, because he's pure, he's holy, he's always right. And there are some questions that we as mortal men and women just cannot answer. I cannot tell you the reason why God chose Israel instead of Eden. Or God chose Israel instead of any other nation. I can't tell you the reason that some people die early and some people die late. I can't tell you why God has this amazing mercy and patience in the Old Testament with some nations and other nations, he's pretty quick and he's just like, hey, judgment, boom. can't tell you that. But Paul says, it's not for us to ask. Lee was asking that question last night. I was walking through the, the message with her and um, she was really torn up about it. She said, well, why? That's just not fair. Well, 
I think fairness was lost in the Garden of Eden when we first sinned. And now, what, was, what is really fair is that we deserve His judgment the moment we sin, right? That's fair. I don't want a fair God. <laughs> I want a loving God. I want a merciful God. I want a God who cares for me, and He does, and He gave His, his life for me in Jesus on the cross. And so these questions, sometimes this part of God's character just doesn't make sense and we just have to trust that He is still in control and that He still loves us so deeply. We know that's true. Some of these other questions, it's tough. Philosophers can go about it. I'm not that smart. But I'm not sure we'll have the answer until we see Him. Verse 21. Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purposes and some for common use? So God chose Israel to be the nation that would experience and declare His glory and righteousness. While all these other nations just had the opportunity to hear Him and see Him through Israel. Right? Why He did this, like I said, is a question that we can ask Him when we finally meet Him. But it was God's choice. And here's what it didn't affect. It didn't affect our choices individually. And it didn't affect the individual members of the nation of Israel. They still chose to follow him. Or they still chose to receive his judgment. They chose to be a part of Israel or they chose not to. But again, this one question that may be unanswered shouldn't keep us from trusting God. Or cause us to ignore all the other evidence of his unending and unwavering love for us. Israel was special and noble while other nations were common. Common is not bad. It is not wrong in any way. If they became bad or out of favor with God, it was because of their choices and decisions. Verse 22. What if God, choosing to show His wrath and make His power known, bore with great patience the objects of His wrath, prepared for destruction? Now, if you read this verse real fast, or just kind of skim over it, it is menacing. Right? It's like, ah, it's got teeth in it. And I mean, it's going to eat you alive. But if you read it in context and, and really just kind of take the time to walk through it and study it, it is an amazing verse. <clears throat> this isn't a decision made before creation. Okay? Wrath, notice what he says here. What if God, choosing to show his wrath, wrath is brought as judgment on disobedience. And Paul again here is pointing out God's mercy. God waited and he waited and he waited for the nations who did not know him. And he waited and he waited and he waited for Israel to come back to him. And guess what? He waited and waited and waited for you and I to come to a relationship with him. This is mercy. This is the definition of mercy. God holding back his wrath and holding back his judgment saying, "Uh, come on, come to know me. Come on, relationship, bring it. This is mercy. And they eventually received his judgment, but it was not without him pleading with them to know him and giving them an opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to do so. Now, if you're a parent... You know how this works, right? Um, I've got three kids, and 
Each one of them are their own little special kind of uh, beings, if you will. <clears throat> but in my house, I'll ask them to do something. Say, pick up the playroom. And they just sit there. Give them a minute. Hey, guys. I asked you to pick up the playroom. You need to pick up the playroom. Give them a minute. Normally, they're hooked on, on you know, their crack TV. And so they're just sitting there. All right, guys, I'm going to ask you one more time. Pick up the playroom. And they just sit there. Normally, I really don't go that far. But if I'm feeling really either lazy or patient with them, it depends on which one it is, then this is how far I go. But the last straw is the dreaded count to three. Right? And with our count to three, it is, it is no holds bars. They know if I get to three, you're going to get spanked. And there's no way you can get out of it. Now, we're not beating our kids, okay? This is much more of an emotional thing, you know. When, it come, when three comes, they know they've screwed up. They start crying before we ever even get them. <clears throat> Leave, my wife, um, she can't spank the kids anymore because they, they don't get hurt by her. She can't swing hard enough. <clears throat> so she goes and gets the spoon. And she gets one of those wooden spoons, right? This is just a plastic one we had in the kitchen. Usually, when I say one, I mean, they are like the road runner on the road to obedience, right? I mean, they're just, ding, 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 and they're going, and that playroom's getting cleaned up. And, and, and leave when she counts. Sometimes she, you know, they, they try to take advantage of her a little bit more. But sometimes she'll just go and get the spoon. And, I mean, they are gone right? I mean, they'll, they'll disappear because the spoon hurts a lot more than, than me because when I'm, when I'm trying to spank them, they're like, ah, you know, doing one of these and they're moving around and I miss them and they know they can get away with more. more. Leave goes and gets this spoon. I think she's only a- ever actually had to use it once and now they're just terrified. Again, we're not beating our kids, so don't call CPS, okay? But here's the thing. <clears throat> Notice what it says here. God prepared evil nations for destruction, right? He did not create them for destruction. He prepared them for destruction. Preparing is, uh, is taking what you have and using it for a specific purpose. So, I have crackers. Do I have a knife? Here we go. And peanut butter. And honey, what am I making, you ask? Oh, ho, ho. If you've never had this, this is the most amazing creation. This is what I have as a late-night snack. Now, I didn't make these ingredients, right? I didn't create these. But I can take them, and I can prepare them, and make something out of it. Kevin, you up for it? Yeah? So Kevin eats a glorious, prepper, prepared, what is that? Crackers, honey, and peanut butter. I don't know. What do you call that? I don't know. And, and, and so here's the thing. Notice what he says here in verse uh, 20, 22. He says, he bore with great patience the objects of his wrath, prepared for destruction. Not created for destruction, but prepared. 
Now, why would God prepare anyone for destruction? Well, he's probably given them time and time and time and time again to come to him, to know him, to follow him. And then he says, all right, listen, Israel's my child. And so I'm preparing you for destruction so they can see some wrath. And so he prepared these nations to show Israel that through both patience and judgment, he shows mercy. Mercy. And he shows Israel mercy through his patience with Israel's sin because Israel had some serious jacked up stuff going on. They would get involved with other nations. It was, I mean, it's just crazy. Take on their other gods. It's bad. And he also shows mercy to Israel by televising his judgment of other nations' sin. He'd show, he'd, he'd, he'd bring down judgment on these other nations. Israel would see it and they'd be, whoa, we gotta, we gotta come back to God. Verse 23. What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy whom he prepared in advance for glory? The objects of his mercy here are Israel and any other nation that he has mercy on. You as a person who trusts in Jesus are an object of God's mercy. Until that point to where you accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, and I'm, I'm not talking about saying a prayer, walking down an aisle, whatever you did in, in your church, I'm talking about you committed your life and said, I'm yours. Until that point, God had mercy on you. And let's be honest, he still has mercy on us, doesn't he? We're forgiven, we're forgiven and forgiven, but it's all because God has mercy on us. And so God has taken what he has seen with Israel, the relationship that the Israelite nation had with him, and he prepared them for glory. This is a repeat of what we looked at in 829. He foresaw what would happen, and he predestined them to be holy. Verse 24. Even us, that's me and you, whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. There's, here's this word called again. This word called is exactly what it is. It's like calling you up on, a phone, on the phone saying, hey, you want to come over for dinner? It's an invitation. And this is an invitation that should be accepted, but it can be denied. And so now that Jesus has come on the scene in our lives, and he's died for our sins, and we trust in him and believe in him, we're called to follow him. This is our calling. Otherwise, we are an object of His mercy. He's holding back His wrath until the day that we meet Him face to face. We are called to be holy. You are called to love God with all your heart, and all your soul, and all your mind, and all your strength. And so I want to close with one question. Have you accepted that invitation to trust your Heavenly Father and to live with Him each and every day. Maybe for the first time, or maybe you're just struggling to take that step of faith that He's calling you to, that step of trust and obedience for Him. Have you accepted that invitation that He gave to Israel, that He gave to other nations, and that He gives to us over and over and over? Father, You are a great God, and it is so wonderful to see in your word that you have such great mercy. 
Father, I deserve judgment. Until I was 18 years old and began a relationship with you, Father. The life I lived deserved death. Thank you for your mercy. May we not forget the mercy you have on us and the mercy that you had on us, God. Make it clear to us throughout this week. Father, if we need to take that step of faith, push us, poke us, prod us, do whatever it takes to get us to move to trust you. Whatever it is in our lives, God, may we trust you not worry, not, not be concerned. Father, may we just lay it in your hands. For those of us who may have never given our lives to you. Father, I pray for your Holy Spirit to move us so that we can. God, I ask this in the name of your Son, Jesus.